and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another episode of All of the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jeffrey Garrett, along with... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And if you are watching this on YouTube, please, please remember to subscribe. If you're watching this on Facebook, remember to like our page. And if you're listening to the podcast, thank you very much for doing that. And welcome to episode five. Now, we are excited to have you back, and we got another great episode for you today featuring a special celebration of the great discussions we've been having here together over the last six months. That's right, six months that we've been on the air. Manuel, can you believe it's been six months already? Man, it's been a great six months. I mean, we've covered so much, and I know to some of our viewers or listeners, this might be your first day with us. So don't worry, we have the six months worth of content at our website, aotashow.com. All right, but first, we dive into some headlines in education with today's warm up. You've certainly heard about Starbucks' big implicit bias training day by now. A firestorm of controversy following the arrest of two black men in a Philadelphia Starbucks set into motion a plan to close all of its stores for one day so that its employees can receive so-called unconscious bias training. This move has had ramifications reaching as far as our own classrooms, with many educators pointing out the fact that implicit bias isn't just something happening in coffee shops. Now, implicit bias is the unconscious attribution of a particular quality to someone based on their race, religion, gender, or some other characteristic. For example, white guys sit in a Starbucks without immediately buying a drink? No problem. Black guys do the same thing? Wait, why are you here? You need to buy something. You're violating company policy. What are you doing? And we know this happens at coffee shops. Many teachers would like you to also know that it happens in classrooms as well. In an education Post blog that went viral last month, teacher Zachary Wright wrote of his own struggle to acknowledge the unconscious racism within him. He wrote, quote, to be the best teacher I can be, to be the best advocate and ally I can be, I need to first do my own work and face the racism within. 2014 Minnesota Teacher of the Year Tom Rademacher wrote about incorporating the implicit bias test into his own lesson plan and reviewing the results with his students. His test showed that he had a, quote, strong automatic bias towards white people. This was a result that he was able to unpack openly and honestly with his students, thanks to the amount of trust and community that he's been able to establish over time in his classroom. Now, needless to say, many educators reject the notion that they have racist beliefs embedded in their everyday thinking. Jeff, does this Starbucks talk maybe give us an opening towards having more serious conversations about racial bias in the classroom? You know, man, well, I think it does. Uh, you know, I think there's something about the kind of simple, obvious truth that was captured uh, in that Starbucks video of two uh, men who were just clearly being profiled and targeted and singled out and, and treated in a, in a very negative way by police and by the company um, that, uh, that has really crystallized the issue for people and brought it to national attention. And uh, I think that does open up some space uh, for us to recognize that if something like this can happen at Starbucks, a place that's literally designed to be the place where you go sit and don't do anything for hours at a time, right. and black folks can get profiled for just sitting and not doing anything for a few minutes, right. uh, that this could be something that uh, permeates many aspects of, of our society. Uh, to see some educators bravely uh, stepping up and speaking about this in their own practice, I think is great. Um, hopefully represents a, a step 
forward. Um, but you know, the reality is we, we might not want to be racist, but we grew up in and are products of a society that has some deeply problematic racial history that impacts who we are, how we operate in the world, what our lived experience is, and we have a collective responsibility to try to address and solve this issue. Yeah, absolutely. And this uh, entire incident reminds me of uh, one of my favorite essays from uh, Gloria Ladson Billings um, called um, Boys to Men, Teaching to Restore Black Boys' Childhood. And in it, she talks about observing a third grade class with a student teacher. And this student teacher was having some kind of issues. There was an Asian American uh, student who kept getting up out of his seat and wandering around the classroom. And she told him again and again and again, please get back to your seat, please get back to your seat. And there was an African-American student who was in his seat the whole time and got up once to ask the teacher a question. And she immediately disciplined him and kicked him out of the classroom for that infraction. And when uh, Latson Billings questioned the teacher about this and asked if she noticed that she allowed the Asian American boy to um, break this rule several times with just a warning, but the African American boy um, did this one time and was kicked out. The teacher was really shocked at that. She hadn't realized that this happened, and this is a clear cut case of the um, uh, implicit bias within us where, um, in her case, when an African American student violates a, a rule, it's because like she's a troublemaker and got to discipline him. And a lot more discussion needs to be had about how this impacts our classrooms every day because if it could happen in a Starbucks you better believe it's happening in just about every classroom in America in some way or another and you know the one day Starbucks training isn't going to solve it but it's an important step forward for our national conversation about race and racism. Yeah absolutely. Uh, next up folks we turn to a story out of New York. Millions of people across the country were brought smack into the middle of one of the most controversial issues in education in recent history that being school segregation. A video out of New York City was all the rage on Facebook and Twitter, showing a parent at a community meeting dramatically protesting the city's attempt to reduce segregation in schools. The parent claims that the New York City Department of Education would be sending the message to students and families that, quote, you've worked your butt off and you didn't get what you needed or wanted that you're going to go to a school that's not going to educate you in the same way that you have been educated and that life sucks, end quote. Now, the shock value of this video is not to be underestimated as it harkens back to some of the ugliest days in our nation's history with Southern municipalities opting to shut down entire school districts or suspend school for up to a year rather than face federally mandated integration. And lest we think this was just a Jim Crow Southern issue, equally hateful scenes were carried out in many Northern cities with white communities violently resisting integration from Boston to New York to Detroit, Los Angeles, and Chicago. But what most people didn't get via this viral video is that it is actually the result of one of the nation's most interesting policy proposals to reduce school segregation. The policy would impact only District 3 in New York City, which includes the Upper West Side of Manhattan and part of Harlem. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with New York, it is the nation's largest school district, and it is comprised of 32 smaller community school districts within it. Together, they are managed by the New York City Department of Education. The district's schools are notoriously segregated by both race and class and this proposal would affect only the 16 middle schools in District 3 
by setting aside 10% of seats at each school to students who score at the lowest level on state tests, and another 15% of seats for students scoring just below proficiency. And admirably, the vast majority of the district's principals, the elected parent leaders, and the district's superintendent all support the policy. So, Manuel, this video blew up social media and got uh, those white parents a lot of heat, for sure. But what do you think about this policy? We know school segregation is a massive problem across the country, and that uh, challenging it is going to be to bring about a firestorm, kind of, no matter what you do. So is this uh, a model for the nation or is this much ado about nothing? Um, well, this plan, you know, I, I don't think it's a plan that's going to um, apply to necessarily uh, nationwide, but it's a great approach. Now, the problems of school segregation are rooted in the problems of housing segregation, which um, are decades long problems that haven't been uh, adequately uh, rectified. So I think any school district, especially in any major city that's trying to do anything to fight against the segregation within the schools is going to meet a lot of resistance, as you said. And for this video, one thing that was, I guess, promising and that uh, made me feel a little bit better about it is, for one, knowing that so many administrators in that area do support this, uh, this plan to try to combat segregation in their schools. But also the fact that the uh, video went viral, I think says a lot about the fact that a lot of people saw it and realized what's happening here is wrong. Like, look at this person, look at what they're saying. This is totally wrong. Like, other people need to see this. So I think that's promising in the sense that, although a lot of people have and harbor a lot of racist views of, um, of each other, the video itself, I think there's more people who see that video and say this is a problem than who see that video and say, yay, hooray for her, she's speaking up. Because, I mean, this is an ugly situation. It's something that needs to be done. I don't know what the long-term solution is to school segregation. It's something that you know experts have been debating for a long, long time. But I'm hopeful to see that this plan is, is something that's set in motion. And despite the resistance, if it continues to move forward, you know, that's a, that's a win. Yeah, uh, the new superintendent uh, or the new chancellor, excuse me, in uh, New York City commented on uh, this policy pr proposal uh, kind of in a tepid way, not necessarily mm -hmm. uh, championing it, but not opposing it um, and saying, frankly, that he thought it was a, a rather mild uh, proposal. And I think I, I would agree. Right. At right. the end of the day, this is not a this is not a radical transformation. Um, to me, it strikes me as a kind of thoughtful way to take a first step forward. And I'm excited to see where it goes next. Yeah, we shall see. All right. So for our third story for today's warm up, um, we're going to turn to Washington, D.C. So this year's cohort of State Teachers of the Year recently traveled to D.C. to be recognized for their achievements. And many of them took this opportunity to speak up about the Trump administration's impact on their schools and on their students. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, Jeff's favorite person on the planet, favorite, met privately with the teachers and fielded a range of questions. As reported by Rebecca Klein in the Huffington Post, things got a bit testy. Oklahoma's Teacher of the Year ignited a, quote, verbal sparring session when he told DeVos that traditional public schools are being drained of resources by her support for school choice policies. Arizona's Teacher of the Year asked DeVos to comment on the wave of teacher strikes, to which DeVos said that she, quote, hopes adults would take their disagreements and solve them not at the expense of kids and their opportunity to go to school and to learn. That expense of kids comments reportedly did not sit well with the teachers in the room. In a private session with the president, National Teacher of the Year Mandy Manning personally handed Trump letters written by her refugee immigrant students. In an interview with CNN, 
She stated, quote, my goal is to share my student stories and to also send a message to not only my immigrants and refugee students, but the LGBT community that they are wanted, they are loved, they are enough, and they matter. She also wrote several, she also wore several pins while accepting her award from the president, including pins representing trans equality, the Women's March, and LGBT rights. Jeff, I thought teachers weren't supposed to be political. Uh, you thought wrong. Uh, there's no such thing as apolitical education. And uh, we actually dove pretty deep into this topic uh, way back in our first episode uh, when we talked about teachers bringing their own politics in the classroom. And we cited an article uh, that shows a real history of National Teachers of the Year um, speaking out and advocating on these issues. Back in 2016, a collection of the National Teachers of the Year from uh, a very diverse cross-section of states across the country um, wrote a, uh, an op-ed for the Washington Post um, saying that they could not support uh, the presidency of Donald Trump, given the harm that many of his policies and his ideology poses to young people and our and our students uh, in this country, so um, I have to say on a personal level, I loved it. Um, I love the uh, the courageousness of it. I love the moral stance on equality and justice. And um, you know, Betsy, my my home girl, mm -hmm. uh, I love just like sticking it to the man or the woman in this case, uh, and asking the tough questions and speaking truth to power. Um, not just for the spectacle of it, but um, for the real justice-oriented root cause underneath it. Um, so I'm, I couldn't be prouder of these teachers. I'm excited that they, they took that step, and I love that it's getting media attention. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm definitely patiently waiting for Trump's response to those letters. I'm sure he's uh, taking his time reading each and every one of those letters from those students and writing a thoughtful response to them. Hopefully we get to see that and see what he has to say to these young refugee immigrant students. Mm. Yeah. All right, next up, we turn to today's show and tell. Manuel, what'd you bring in for the class? All right, so for today, I brought in a graduation cap. And full disclosure, this is my own graduation cap from when I graduated high school back in the day. Don't ask me how I still have it, I don't know. But I brought it in today because it's commencement season. And don't worry, don't stop the video. I'm not here to give some corny commencement speech. It's just that I've been thinking a lot lately about the end of this current school year and the fact that it really feels like a uniquely big moment. Graduations, of course, are a big deal and people get caught up in all the feels because commencement represents a transition out of one big era and into a new big and uncertain era. Looking back on this school year, it seems that American schools are in the midst of a scary transition themselves and not enough critical discussion is being had about this transition. For one, this school year has been the Parkland year. The discussion about gun violence as it relates to our schools will never be the same. We've crossed the threshold into arm the teachers territory. Some are saying never again, we need sensible gun laws. Others are saying we need more armed officers, more armed teachers. Will this class of 2018 be the last in which saying the name of a school immediately conjures up visions of bloodshed and tears? No matter which way we're headed, this is a major transition, folks. And I wanna ask you, what do you think our schools will look like when this class of 2018 is celebrating its 10-year reunion? Our schools are also facing a big transition with regards to the debate between traditional public schooling and school choice. Our federal Department of Education is all in on the concept of school choice. Yeah, I know you think I'm gonna start ranting about Betsy, but it's commencement season and I don't wanna work myself up into a fit. I wanna stay positive. 
But this administration has its sights set on our public schooling system. That's a fact. And this year's wave of teacher strikes shows that we public school educators are not yet ready to sit back and see our school systems defunded and dismantled. One way or another, this battle is going to be fought and we face this major transition. I wanna ask you, what will our great American schooling system look like when the class of 2018 celebrates its 20 year reunion? The scariest transition that I see taking place is the growing divide over our basic notions of what it means to be an American. The vitriol, bigotry, and anger that has overrun our political discourse has spilled right into our schools. One day you hear about a middle school teacher who secretly ran a white supremacist podcast, and the next day you hear about some professor publicly celebrating the death of Barbara Bush. We as a nation are not on the same page about who we are and what we stand for. Basics like what to teach about the Civil War and slavery have become hot, divisive topics. And while we live in our bubbles and yell into our echo chambers, our student population is becoming more diverse than ever, and schools and parents still don't seem to know how to deal with this reality. At the class of 2018's 30-year reunion, will they be able to look at each other and look across our American landscape and share a common, unifying idea of who we are as a nation? I sure hope so. The class of 2018 now goes off into the world while we who work in education stick behind to prep for another school year. Folks, we should be just as nervous and excited about our future as those graduates are about theirs. It's time to start having those uncomfortable, critical conversations with people in your schools so that we can shape this future purposefully, equitably, and ethically. Wow, Manuel, uh, eloquently said as usual, and uh, really made me think about uh, the kind of excitement of this time of year. Um, it's, a, it's such a, an important moment of evolution for our seniors who are moving on um, and both culminating and just beginning uh, the, the journey of life. And then the kind of opportunity for rebirth that we have bringing in new ninth graders into high school or new sixth graders or new kindergartners and the opportunity for a fresh start and to really try to do things maybe the way we should do them a little more than maybe we did before. So uh, well said, appreciate your words today. Thank you. All right, and now it's time to take a look at this episode's seminar, which is a special, special edition of our seminar segment celebrating six months of all of the above. All right, welcome back. Welcome to our seminar segment of episode five. Those of you who have been with us since the beginning know that the seminar is where we bring in guests who work in the field of education and who are making waves. And we have these panelists come in and we discuss different topics each episode. For today's seminar, since it happens to be our six month anniversary of this show, we thought we would take a moment to look back at some of the discussions that were had in previous episodes and review some of the highlights. To help us with that process, we brought in this ProWise interactive panel and we borrowed it from ELB Education. So shout out to ELB Education for letting us borrow this for this special six month anniversary episode of All the Above. Those of you who are interested in an interactive pa panel such as this ProWise one, you could definitely hit up ELB Education on social media or go to our website and we'll have links there to uh, help you out with that. But for now, we are going to use this to visit our website and take a look at some of what we've done before. What is the website, Jeff? What's the... Well, if you don't know, now you know. 
aotashow.com. Again, that's aotashow.com, all the above show. And let's take a little trip there and look at some of the content. Now, we know that most of our viewers have seen our content on Facebook. We've had tens of thousands of views, and we really appreciate all the support and folks who are sharing the videos. Definitely keep that up. Um, but of course, you can always find everything we've produced on our website. So right here on the landing page, there's a quick link to always watch the latest episode that we've produced. Um, there's some links so you can learn a little more about the history of the show and about the co-hosts, Manuel and I. And then, of course, we have some easy to access links for, so you can find our content. We know some of you are commuters and won't be able to watch the video, so you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And then, of course, we have our YouTube channel. Now, we really want to take a sec and plug this because um, we know that folks want to keep up to date with what we're doing on the show, and there's no better way than to subscribe to our YouTube channel. So when you land on the page, there's that big red subscribe button. Click it. All you need is a Gmail account or a Google ID to be able to sign in, subscribe. You'll always be up to date on the latest with all of the above. All right, but for now, we're going to go back to our website and take a look at some of the highlights from previous episodes. And we will begin with a look at our premiere episode, episode one, which was posted about six months ago. Mm. So for episode one, we had a fantastic discussion way yeah, back did. in December, um, exploring this issue around politics in the classroom. And when teachers bring their own politics in, how much is too much, right? Really right. interesting topic of conversation. We had a couple of great guests with us. Uh, we had uh, Dr. Akita Kassane Long, longtime principal and educator in Los Angeles, now is a professor uh, of teacher education at the University of Laverne. Yeah, real all-star, real legend in uh, Los Angeles education. We also brought in a student teacher because we're interested in hearing the perspective of somebody who's entering the field. And so we brought in student teacher Alyssa, who shared a little bit about um, what she's learning when it comes to a teacher using their own politics or considering their own politics when they're teaching their core content lessons. Yeah, so the clip we're gonna see here uh, is Dr. Long exploring a little bit of this idea about how teachers can use all the craziness in uh, the news and in the media as a teachable moment in the classroom. Right. Let's take a look. So even if we believe that Donald Trump is not serving the office of the presidency well, I think it's an opportunity for teachers to present the facts, present the tweets, present the news, and ask the children to weigh the evidence and create arguments for why this might not align with the values of our Constitution, why it might not align with the values that maybe the founding fathers had in mind when they framed the Constitution. I think it's an absolutely outstanding teachable moment. And the more that the teachers can set the stage for children to, um, to consider those issues, the higher the level of instruction becomes. Yeah. So I think what she said was, was really powerful, but Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you think about her, her comments there? Yeah, I think what she said was powerful six months ago. It's even more powerful now. Um, there is just a daily barrage of scandal, of kind of crazy stories coming out in the media about what's happening in Washington, about what's happening uh, with Kanye West, right? right and so right. all of these things are supercharged and really things where um, the line between teachers being able to teach 
about facts and being able to teach what's happening and uh, having to present their own opinion is very difficult to navigate. Um, so more so than ever, it's important for teachers to present the facts, create space for students to explore uh, the debate in the classroom and to practice using good kind of decision making and reasoning skills. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this political climate isn't going away anytime soon. And a teacher needs to regard this as a teachable moment. It's really a little bit more than a moment because this is something that's going to be with us, I think, for years. And um, I, I really am concerned about teachers who just ignore it to be safe and who ignore the headlines and ignore everything that's happening and don't engage their students at all in thinking about it because the fact of the matter is a lot of students, it weighs heavily on their mind, especially if they're students who are personally affected by any of the vitriol or any of the uh, comments coming out. Uh, recently, there was a, a speech, a, a rally in Michigan where Trump asked the room, do we have any Hispanics in the room? And you can hear boos in the background. And we have a lot of Hispanic students. And if a teacher is just avoiding all that news and not engaging with their students, you know, these students are worried and these students are anxious about what's happening. And I think it's very powerful that Akita uh, was able to come out and say, look, this is a teachable moment, period. No matter your content, no matter if you're a social science teacher or a math teacher or whatever, um, we really got to take some time to reflect on what's happening. and. Um, weigh the evidence. Yeah, the choice to ignore what's happening is an equally political choice to the choice to engage with it and talk with the students about what's happening in our world. Right, absolutely. Yeah. So after that first seminar, after talking about something that is really difficult for people to talk about nowadays, which is the politically intense climate, we thought for our second episode, we touch on a topic that people are much more comfortable discussing, which is race, culture, and American schooling. And one of our panelists that day was Dr. Terrence Keel. He's a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's a professor of black studies and history. He has a book that he uh, recently published through Stanford University Press. It's called Divine Variations. And in it, he looks at the intersection of race and science and um, religion. And we thought we'd bring him on to discuss how teachers and the education system should explore matters of race in 2018. We're gonna take a look at one of the things that he said about how and why we should discuss race in our schools. Well, I, I, I would love to hear what Roxana has to say about this because I think uh, as a college educator, we often get students who come into our classrooms who sometimes don't really have the skills and the tools to think critically about race and ethnicity and identity. And I think that's a missed opportunity because by the time our students are prepared for college, they are young adults with well-shaped ideas. And I think in many ways, teaching them to think critically about what it means to be a member of this nation state, what it means to have a racial identity. The fact that we live in a society that is structured by race, I believe requires that we teach our students and we give them the tools to think critically about that world. You know, Manuel, I really love a lot of what uh, Dr. Keel had to say in that clip. Uh, so much of that resonates with me because all or a good deal of the controversy and turmoil that we're experiencing, I think, in our society stems back from an issue where we struggle to even talk about race in our society. Right. And uh, some folks who are fortunate enough learn some of that vocabulary and some of that history and language at home. But let's be real, most of us learn to have those kind of conversations, if we learn at all, right. um, in a safe context at school. And I think it's really a place uh, where there's room for growth um, in the curriculum and in what we're doing in our classrooms um, to hopefully get to a place where 
college professors are not saying that they're inheriting our students who are unable to even really participate in that kind of discussion because they lack the language. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that is especially difficult when you look at the diversity in the teaching force, which is to say there's not much diversity in the teaching force. In that same uh, seminar, we touched on the fact that 82% of American teachers are white, whereas the majority of American students in public schools are non-white. So to help us with the question of how do we engage in this work with a predominantly white teaching force, uh, Roxana Duenas, who was another guest on that same episode, uh, shared her thoughts about where this work should begin. And she's a all-star teacher of ethnic studies and history in Los Angeles. And her perspective here on this seminar was, was, was really valuable. Let's take a look. One thing that I, I'm thinking about is um, in moving beyond ethnic studies is, and as we move forward in, in thinking about the, these courses is, one, we're asking ourselves, you know, who's teaching in the classes? And it's right. 82% of, of the population are white women, middle-class white women, I believe it is, right? Um, one question that I'm always asking myself is, um, what are teacher education programs doing to properly train folks to be able to do this? And it always goes back to these theoretical frameworks of, you know, critical pedagogy or critical race theory. And so I think, whether it's the school districts or whether it's the teacher education programs, how are we moving beyond like this multicultural education where we just kind of celebrate the holidays and really incorporate these critical frameworks into the teacher education programs and the training programs because otherwise it just kind of becomes this like celebratory, like let's talk about all of the great things that this person of color did, but not really grappling with the, some of the deeper, right. you know, more uncomfortable conversations about our own privilege, right? right? And I think regardless of who's teaching the class, right, I'm also having, having to name my own privilege, right? And once I do that, I think we're modeling for our students mm -hmm. to be able to do these things as well, depending on wh where you're coming from. So. I think it goes back to the teacher training programs and the professional development that's happening in our schools from that critical lens. Yeah, and you know, I think Roxanne has you know, hit the nail right on the head. Uh, this work is very difficult work and you can't just have one-off PD sessions or workshops during a staff meeting to, to help catch the staff up to how to do this. Teacher education programs really have to rewrite their curriculum um, to make sure there's a critical focus on these racial frameworks that guide and um, have so much to do with our everyday experiences here in the, in the U.S. Next up, we turn to a clip from episode three. Episode three, we took on a really interesting issue around our culture and our movement towards college for all. Um, in a world where college is more important than ever uh, for economic opportunity and for social mobility, um, are we doing the right thing by promoting college and four-year college for all students. Um, we had two great guests with us that day. Uh, one, Rachel Bonkowski, who is a principal manager here in Los Angeles and supervises high schools. Um, the other, Mo Hyman, who um, is the founder and uh, head of a local nonprofit that provides additional college counseling support for students in the Los Angeles area. All right, so Mo had a lot to say about whether or not, <clears throat> excuse me, whether or not we're doing right by having all students plan for going to college after high school. So let's take a look at what she said. Yeah, students should make informed choices, right? The number one determinant of whether or not a student goes to college is whether or not their parents did. That's it. Not grades, not test scores, but whether or not their parents did. And that's not an equitable situation, right? right. 
that does not offer equal access to a college education. That is a caste system. That is simply saying you can't go because your parents didn't go. And we're really trying to break down those barriers so that every student has the same information, that baseline knowledge, and they can make an informed decision. And if when they're a senior in high school, they say, yes, I have all the information, I have been completely informed, and I'm opting out. Mm -hmm. That's great. But it shouldn't be an opt-in for some students mm -hmm. and an opt-out for others. Yeah. All right, so Jeff, what, do you, what was your reaction when she explained college access as being a bit of a caste system? Yeah, I mean, uh, just that term, caste system, uh, just really like cuts deep to the soul, right? right. Um, it's the kind of term that when someone throws that around about you and your country um, and the profession in which you work, it really uh, makes you think about who you are and what you're about in the world. Um, you know, I can't argue with it though, right? The, right? the idea that so much of what determines life outcomes for uh, people in our society has to do with what they have been in uh, what they have inherited and been given by their family both advantage and disadvantage and so I think she really spoke to to a core issue in our society we take on a lot of the kind of built-in challenges of our economic system of capitalism and say that school is going to fix them um, you know one can debate the merits of that statement but certainly right now uh, our system is not fixing them the way that we should. And we know that there's too much kind of pre-sorting uh, happening that's determining outcomes for kids in our, in our schools. Absolutely, and I love what she said about the fact that if a student chooses not to go, that's great, but it's our responsibility to arm them with the proper information and arm them with the proper skills so that they can go so if they choose to. You know, a lot of times I hear uh, different teachers say, well, college can't be for everybody. And I don't think anyone's saying every single person needs to go to college, but it's very important that in order to fight against the inequities that have existed for, for um, hundreds of years, that we help those students who don't have that access gain that access so that they can make the proper decision for themselves and uh, important work that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely, totally agree. All right, so after that seminar where we discussed college access, we turn to the matter of technology in American schools for our fourth seminar, which was a really big seminar because we brought three really big high power guests together on set to discuss how technology is shaping the teaching and learning that's happening in American schools today. So one of our guests, Dr. Jeff Scher, is a faculty advisor of the UCLA Teacher Edu Education Program, and he specializes in critical media literacy. Another guest of ours, Evelyn Ennis, is an all-star teacher, uh, teaches middle school using blended learning techniques in Los Angeles. And our third guest is a technologist by the name of Santosh Balasubramanian, who formerly worked with the Khan Academy and Google, and currently is a researcher at Stanford. And we're gonna look at one of his statements from that seminar, in which he discusses the importance of considering pedagogy when talking about technology and the specific mechanics of a technological tool. So let's see what he had to say. The thing that I always keep in the back of my head when I'm thinking about sort of like how to, how to improve a piece of educational technology is in, in the 80s, uh, Benjamin Bloom, who's famous for Bloom's taxonomy, did sort of a, a meta-analysis of a bunch of different interventions that you could do in the classroom. So looking at homework, looking at, you know, sort of warm-ups at the beginning of a lesson, looking at one-on-one -on -one tutoring, uh, looking at all sorts of different uh, different ways of structuring the curriculum. And uh, what he found was that uh, far and away, the most powerful intervention that you could do is just having one-to-one -one tutorial instruction, uh, which 
kind of makes sense. If you have a, like a student who's able to work one-on-one -on -one with a teacher, you're going to be able to achieve things that you wouldn't be able to uh, in a large classroom. But obviously, just pragmatically, it's just not that's not feasible. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and and so the, the way that I think about technology is sort of like how can we like allow teachers to bring their classroom maybe like 10% closer to that ideal mm -hmm. of one-on-one -on -one instruction. Um, and so with that in mind, I think that sort of helps me conceptualize it. But uh, I think sort of as you think about teacher training and uh, helping teachers use these tools more effectively, it's important to have the conversation sort of at the right level of abstraction, right? Like if you talk purely in sort of the abstract pedagogy, that's not really helpful to most teachers as they're thinking about day-to-day -day lesson planning. And similarly, like in lots of, you know, trainings that happen with educational software, the focus will be on, you know, if you click these five buttons in this app, you get magic with your students or something like that. Mm. And I think that's too low level. The pedagogy is often too high level. And so I think as you're talking to teachers and students about how to use these tools effectively, you need to kind of like strike that middle ground um, and help people use both the general principles and the concrete specifics of how do I actually use this tool. Yeah. All right, so that's really powerful comments there. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Jeff? You know, I really love what Santosh had to say. Um, I think it totally resonates as, uh, you know, a former administrator and supporting lots of schools that are implementing uh, devices and various software programs into instruction. So often you see those extremes. Teachers get told, differentiate for all the kids, right? right. How do you do that, right? Um, they get given a Chromebook and told miracles will happen because we have Chromebooks now or we have right. iPads now. Um, and I think we know that the, the real sort of secret sauce is somewhere in between. You need to have literacy in using the devices and how to engage students with them. You need to be thinking strategically about the pedagogical moves that are actually going to deliver good instruction and not just screen time for the kids. Uh, so I really feel like what he voiced was the, the kind of area we need to be focusing on as we move forward in a world where districts are spending billions of dollars a year on devices and software. Right, right. I think with technology especially, um, but in education in general, when it comes to uh, PD, a lot of times we're all looking for that magic bullet that'll just revolutionize our teaching and learning in the classroom. And with technology, it's so easy to fall uh, victim to this idea that this one app is going to magically transform everything. And that reminds me of a recent PD session that I was, that I was in where the uh, presenter was using, I won't say the name of it, but it was online quiz type tool thing and it was you know you got a race to put the right answer before everybody else does interactive in that sense but it was still just like regurgitating basic information it, it wasn't advancing the learning that was happening in that room it was just a fun little techie type tool um, so his concerns about making sure that we don't lose sight of the ped pedagogy at all um, very very important but of course you know on the day-to-day -day, a lot of teachers they they really need to quickly learn how to use this tool uh, so there's got to be some kind of balance in that conversation yeah but if we spend billions of dollars a year and what we have is fancy electronic worksheets uh, I think there's reason for us to question right, <laughs> that, right, right. that allocation of public resources, right? So we really have to have the balance where, um, as you so eloquently said, the integration of technology in the classroom is advancing the learning that's taking right. place um, or accomplishing things that a teacher could not accomplish without that technology. Yeah, absolutely.
So in addition to our seminars, you know, our show is not just about panel discussions, even though those are very powerful. We have a lot of other segments and other features as well. And one thing that is very popular on our Facebook page is something that we call the All of the Above Short. We've had several All of the Above Shorts, which are just quick two to three minute looks at an education story. And one of the shorts that was very well received was a short that we did where we reflected on whether or not the teacher shortage was a result of the low prestige and low pay that teachers have. So let's take a look. The teaching profession has become low pay and low prestige in America. This according to a group of Colorado district superintendents who gathered in late 2017 to develop and share creative ideas for how to attract and retain teachers, counselors, and other credentialed professionals working in schools. Now, Colorado, like most of the country, faces continued dips in the number of graduates completing teacher training programs in their state colleges and universities. But the superintendents see the root of the problem as much deeper than that. State Education Commissioner Katie Anthes cited a number of factors for the decline, including stress, salaries, baby boomer retirements, support or frankly lack thereof, and working conditions for those newest to the profession. Rico Munn, superintendent of Aurora, a suburban Denver community, said there has been a long-held belief that, quote, teaching is a job that anyone can do, and that the mindset has filtered down to decisions about funding and policy that negatively impact the profession. Now, Manuel, we know teaching has long, long been. So, Jeff, this was very well received. We received thousands of views on Facebook for this short. Um, why do you think it was so positively received by everybody? Yeah, you know, I think what's interesting is once in a while in our shorts, we really hit on a subject that resonates with a really broad audience of people, right? And so what I saw both in uh, looking at some of the data of our viewers and also looking at some of the comments and reactions from people is that uh, this type of post, it resonates with teachers, right? Who understand right. what it's like to work in the in the profession and, and to feel some of those pressures of low pay and low prestige. Um, but it also resonates with parents, it resonates with people who are interested in public policy um, because we have a we have an issue right we have a shortage uh, of teachers in, in most states across the country we have a greater and greater emphasis on education and uh, I think what this short really did is kind of dramatize this issue in a way that um, was accessible to a pretty pretty big audience and folks really felt like it connected with what they care about and their experience in the world or the experience of their kids yeah absolutely I agree so uh, next up, we're going to take a look at a couple of our other segments that take place uh, in each of our episodes. And uh, we have one that we call the assessment, which is really an opportunity for Manuel or myself to kind of uh, to riff on a subject that we're passionate about um, and really dig deep and kind of share some thoughts and, and perhaps a new perspective on an issue that um, folks may or may not be thinking about. Um, so the clip we're going to watch here is um, from an episode where Manuel took us into a discussion about uh, DACA and about teacher perceptions about DACA and what should happen with their undocumented students. So um, let's take a look. You mean to tell me that there are students who may have been in your class who you want to deport or who you are okay with having live in fear? I don't care about your personal politics. We're not speaking about any of that. We're speaking about students here. Immigration reform, foreign policy debates, political bickering, all that is for grown folks. And we're talking about youngsters. 
As an educator, you have a duty to serve and defend each and every youngster who you are blessed enough to have the privilege of teaching and have the privilege of having on your roster. You are an advocate and a defender. Don't let grown folks' business get in the way of your duty to cherish each and every youngster in your classroom. To the 28% of you educators who aren't on board with DACA, I wonder, is this a reflection of your general bias against immigrants? A kid grows up in the US, never spends any real time anywhere else, and you're not sure if he or she should be allowed to simply stay here and exist just because of the mechanism by which he or she landed here? So what does that mean if I'm a kid in your class who's an immigrant, or who might assume is an immigrant based on my name, skin tone, accent? You don't think I should be allowed to stay? That means you don't really see me, my humanity, my purpose, my promise. Your classroom isn't a safe haven for me at all. So, Manuel, powerful statement for sure. And uh, I can imagine that um, everyone you heard from agreed with you and felt like that was a self-evident point, right? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely not. Um, not at all. This, we, for <laughs> one reason or another, this video attracted the trolls. They came out of nowhere. And um, if you search up this video on our Facebook page, you'll see long, long list of commentary by people reminding us that the law is the law, there's a nation of laws, you guys need to learn the definition of illegal, what are you guys teaching? When all I said in the video was as a teacher, you need to defend everybody in there, regardless of who they are, all right? Doesn't matter their immigration status, doesn't matter their past, doesn't matter anything. Like, they're, they're your babies on your roster, you gotta stand up for them. That's all I was saying. Um, and I specifically said, this is not about personal politics. This is about defending the youngsters in your classroom, period. Um, but everyone made it about personal politics. And I got called libtard, uh, you know, snowflake, pencil neck, like just attacking my uh, physical appearance, which really hurt my soul. It didn't really hurt, but, you know, it was just really, really, um, I guess, a little surprising. And that's, you know, we know a lot of good people are watching this show and we really encourage your comments on our different segments because the trolls love to comment and a lot of other people watch and they appreciate and you know some more chiming in would be fantastic yeah yeah the like button is great but a comment or two to help uh, balance the equation would also be appreciated uh for sure so also on our show another segment that we have is called the show and tell, where basically uh, we bring in an object to, to serve as a starting place for a deeper discussion about some aspect of education. And one that was very well regarded and very well received was your show and tell, where you brought in a clock to symbolize the lack of time that teachers are given to do their work to the best of their ability. So let's take a look at what you had to say in that show and tell. Well, for today's show and tell, I brought in this clock and it symbolizes time. It's the time, or really the lack of time, that teachers get in nearly every school and district across the United States to, to adequately plan, to meaningfully collaborate with their colleagues, to analyze data, and to address the myriad of other responsibilities that go into being an effective teacher in your daily practice. Now, across the country, teachers typically get less than an hour of individual prep time per day. And in too many cases, they get no time at all. In addition, when it comes to the valuable time teachers need to engage in common planning or structured, impactful collaboration with colleagues who teach either the same content or the same students, it's not unusual for teachers to get something like an hour a week or maybe an hour every other week 
or in some cases, an hour once a month to engage in that kind of work. This construction of time for American teachers puts us shockingly out of step with the norms for practice in the highest performing nations across the globe. According to the 2013 Teaching and Learning Survey, American teachers work roughly an equal contractual work week to their international peers, but spend an average of nearly 40% more time teaching students throughout the week. Now in a typical seven hour school day, this amounts to American teachers spending about five and a half hours teaching, while their international peers spend a little less than four hours in the classroom per day. The balance of their time all right, Jeff, so did the trolls jump out at you for that uh, controversial statement? About highly, highly controversial statement. Yeah. Uh, no, quite the opposite. Interestingly enough, uh, a number of comments from folks really speaking to how this point resonates uh, with their experience as teachers, and then some, some just kind of shock and outrage or surprise from non-educators who really didn't have a sense of, like, when you add up the minutes, what is life like for, for teachers and for educators? And, um, you know, I try and think of, of analogies that, that might help people think about how ridiculous it is that uh, teachers get so little time. So imagine, uh, you know, a professional football team, right? Um, that team plays one game a week. That week, or that game lasts mm -hmm. for about three hours. They right. practice five to six days a week, right, for uh, six plus hours uh, right. a day, right? Studying film, practicing, conditioning, strengthening, right? All for that three hour performance. Now, that's a little bit of a, a, a dramatic example, but um, we couldn't possibly imagine a team in the NFL being successful by getting, you know, 35 minutes a day uh, to practice and then having to perform for five to six hours a day, right? right? And so um, I think when we're thinking about this issue, we really have to stack it up next to the kind of work-life experience of most other professions, which is you take the time and you get the time you need to be prepared to do your job well. That's part of your job. That's not an extra activity you do, uh, you know, just at night and on the weekends if you aren't too tired. Right, right. Right. So, all right, folks. So that's just a, a sample of all the different topics we've we've broached in just a six months of work here. And there's a lot more. All the content is on our website, AOTAshow.com. Also on our YouTube page. We really do need those YouTube subscribers. Uh, we're doing okay on Facebook. We could do better. But um, our YouTube subscriptions, we'd like to see that number go up some. Uh, so definitely chime in. If any of these highlights resonated with you, make sure you leave your comments. Um, you can contact us. The top of the website has our um, little link to contact us and at the bottom of each page is a button to like us on Facebook. So definitely jump in and we're looking forward to um, another six months of greatness and perhaps then we'll have another review episode. And again, we wanna shout out ELB Education for allowing us to borrow this ProWise interactive uh, display. So thank you very much. Now let's move on to the next segment of this episode. Man, it was really fun looking at highlights from the first six months of this show. Yeah, um, yeah. Good times there, and we're going to go ahead and press onward and forward to new territory, and we're, we are going to begin with today's assessment. Jeff, what do you got for us today? Well, today I want to take a moment and acknowledge some unsung heroes in the field of education who rarely, if ever, get celebrated in our national discourse. Now, this came to mind recently as I was booking my travel to my hometown uh, for the summer. I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, 
And it was nearly two years ago now that the nation was rocked by the graphic video capturing the death of Philando Castile, a St. Paul Public Schools Nutrition Services employee at the hands of police. Amid all the protests, outrage, and national mourning at his murder, a powerful and perhaps more hopeful story has also emerged as well. To the nation, Philando Castile has become a martyr and a symbol of the larger movement for black lives. But to the 500 students and families at James J. Hill Montessori School, he was the fun, loving, and nurturing guy who they saw in the cafeteria every day. He memorized every student's name. He knew all of their food allergies and worked with parents to ensure that students who needed to stay away from things like milk or nuts had that type of protection. The kids loved him and called him Mr. Phil. The parents appreciated the attention he brought to his work on behalf of their little ones. The emotions of the students who would forever miss Mr. Phil in the cafeteria were perhaps best captured in this letter from one of his students. Joan Edmond, a paraprofessional who worked at the school with Philando, told Time, quote, this was a real guy. He made a real contribution. Yes, black lives matter, but this man mattered, end quote. And the outpouring of love and support in Philando's honor didn't stop there. In March of 2018, a fundraiser created in Philando's honor delivered a $35,000 check to the St. Paul Public School District to cover the outstanding lunch debt owed by students at every school in the district. Philando was known to often cover for students when they didn't have enough to pay for lunch and didn't qualify for free lunch. And as I think back on the wake left behind by Philando's passing, I think not just about the big issues his death has come to symbolize, but the powerful symbol he also is of many of the unsung heroes who work in our schools. Philando was special, but he wasn't alone. Across the nation, there are hundreds of thousands of adults doing critically important work in schools who are not what you would think of as a teacher, but who are in many ways equally important in the lives of our students and vitally important to ensuring our students are able to learn each day. These unsung heroes include paraprofessionals and teaching assistants, nurses, secretaries, and office technicians, custodians, cafeteria workers, campus aides, parent center employees and volunteers, deans, security personnel, and more. These adults represent many of the smiling faces who care for students each day. And in many districts, these adults are people who live in the communities our students come from, who've walked in their shoes, who face similar challenges, and who literally embody and model the path towards college and a career that we espouse to our students from a young age. And as we hear about teacher strikes gripping states across the nation, let us not also forget that many of the folks I just mentioned are woefully underpaid, along with their teacher colleagues. Their unions, like teachers, are in too many cases fighting the fight for a just and decent wage, for fair benefits, and for a standard of living that we should expect for everyone in our society. Now, I can think of dozens of students in my career whose most important adult mentor in our school was one of these unsung heroes. Students may not be taught 
algebra by them during second period, but they are taught life by them every time they pause for a conversation, every time the student is crying in the hallways and needs a hug or a pat on the back, and every time they're proud of an accomplishment and are so eager to find an adult to share with. So here's to all the unsung heroes out there doing great work each day and every day to make sure our students are safe, fed, cared for, and supported. Challenged and picked back up again when they fall down. Keep doing what you do to make our schools great places to be for young people. We see you. Yes, absolutely. Man, I'm so glad for that assessment. As you were um, speaking on that unsung hero uh, reality, I was just thinking of all the names of unsung heroes that have helped me out, um, both as a student and as a teacher. Uh, the unsung heroes at the campus that I work at, I mean, have been instrumental in my success in the classroom because, like you said, a lot of them live in the community that our students come from, and a lot of them have the background story on so-and-so and so-and-so that we might not have as teachers. And without them, schools cannot function the way they do. I mean, kids cannot learn if they're hungry. Kids cannot uh, focus in class if there's, you know, unsafe facilities and trash everywhere and these unsung heroes really step up to make sure the system is running cleanly in such a way that us uh, teachers could focus on our craft of um, helping these students learn um, the unsung heroes that were popping in my head I, I can't even name them all because our show isn't that long but I mean Miss Tracy Miss Vicky Rogelio all of you like I could not function the way I do as a teacher without any of you and neither could our students and there's so many of them and I wish more um, was said about the role that they play in schools and I, you know teachers definitely need more um, more acknowledgement for the work that they do I think in our national discourse but man beyond teachers like these unsung heroes are just instrumental um, pieces of our national fabric and our public schooling system so I thank you very much for shouting them out yeah absolutely uh, that phrase it takes a village to raise a child I think in a in a school context the village isn't just the teachers right it's all the adults who work in a building absolutely all right, that's great. All right, so let's wrap up this episode. All right, uh, we'll close out with our... Uh, Class dismissed. <laughs> we know this by now. We've been doing this for six we months. Have, we got we this. Have. Eventually, I'll remember. Eventually. All right, folks, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, before we go today, I want to shout out the high schools across the country who are celebrating signing days with their students. Now, we've seen a growing trend in recent years of making a big deal of students who are on their way to college. Now, sometimes these are events celebrating individual kids. You've probably seen some of these viral videos. And sometimes it's a whole grade or even a whole school particularly in communities where the hurdles to college are the greatest, it's really wonderful to see so much pride and a sense of accomplishment on the faces of our young people. It's the end of the school year now, and for our seniors, both the end and the beginning of a long journey. So props to all the counselors, teachers, mentors, parents, and others who've been a part of these young people's success. They couldn't have done it without you. All right, and I want to quickly shout out all of the viewers out there and the listeners of our podcast who have been with us since the beginning of the six-month journey. Now, today we celebrated six months of all of the above, and we really, really appreciate each and every one of you who've chimed in on Facebook, who've subscribed to our YouTube channel, who've um, you know given us your thoughts and your feedback, both in person and online. We really appreciate the support, and we for sure appreciate the word of mouth and helping other people learn about this show. Anybody who's interested in education in American schooling today, 
today, which should be everybody because it's that big of a that big of a field that is hardly ever talked about in our national media. So thank you very much for your support, and we look forward to many, many, many future episodes and continuing the conversations that have begun over these last six months.